0: Father, we come before you this morning, Lord, as we open up John chapter 11, and as we look at this story of Lazarus and Mary and Martha and their interactions with you, we pray that you would speak to our hearts, Lord, and that you would reveal yourself today. We pray that as we leave this this morning, that we would know you better than when we came. We ask that in your name, Jesus. Amen. C.S. Lewis famously said, pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Let me read that again. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at pain in the lives of some of Jesus' followers and examining what the Lord does with that pain and how he uses it for his glory, how he takes that pain and he, and he repurposes it and he recycles it and he uses it for something beautiful. It says in chapter 11, verse 1, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And so we don't know a lot about this family, Lazarus and Mary and Martha. We know a few things. We see that they are from Bethany, Bethany was a small town that was a couple miles outside of Jerusalem. We know that Mary and Martha and Lazarus, they were, they were very devoted, very early followers of Jesus. We see through the text that they were a family of at least moderate financial means. Maybe they weren't rich, but they had at least a degree of, of influence and money. They probably, and we know that partly because, you know, they're all camped out at this house. But also when Lazarus dies, that's sort of a spoiler alert, I guess. We're going to get to that in a little while. Lazarus dies, if you didn't know. But um, when he dies, all the, the rulers, the Jews, it says, come to visit. All right? And they didn't just go visit just anybody who died. But because they were a prominent family, he was a, a person of some social and and or political import, right, they came to visit him. We, um, we know that they were very close to Jesus personally. Only three people in John's gospel are mentioned by name as people whom Jesus loved. And that was Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. And then John, of course, refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. But um, only three mentioned by name. And so it says in verse two, it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So, is this is the same Mary John says? Who and this hasn't happened yet. And, and we see that that John and a lot of the New Testament writers, a lot of writers in Scripture in general, they weren't always super concerned with chronology, right? They are more concerned with telling the story. Than, than making sure that everything was linear. And, and that's confusing for us. Because we, as modern Western thinkers, we like everything very linear. Right? And, and so, like, when we read sometimes through, like, First and Second Samuel, for example, and you may have experienced this, you're reading through there, and, and you see, you know, David has this encounter with King Saul. And then later on down the road, a few chapters later, it seems like David's meeting Saul again for the first time. And you're like, well, what's going on? Did either Saul have amnesia? Or did the writer have I mean, it doesn't make sense because we don't think that way. And they weren't necessarily concerned with the timeline as much as they were with, with telling the stories. And so that's kind of what's going on here. He, he's introducing Mary, who was going to do this ointment thing, knowing that people had probably heard about that, even though it hadn't happened yet. And so it says that, I lost my spot there getting to that explanation. So it says we see that this Mary here, this is the one who anointed Jesus' feet with that oxnard. This is Mary who had, who had wiped Jesus' feet. And this isn't the Mary to be confused with Mary Magdalene. This is a different Mary. So we see here in the picture Jesus' friend Lazarus. He's taken ill. He has a fairly serious affliction. And they were concerned with his, for his life. They were worried that he might die. And so the sisters, verse 3, sent to Jesus saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. So I want to kind of note as we start here, that there was a, a deep faith in Jesus. And a deep faith in his ability to meet their needs in this situation. So the girls, they, they send this message. They send this messenger to Jesus, right? I mean, there were no phones in that day. There were no texts. This was a this was a manual operation. right? They had to go, and somebody had to go run out there and find Jesus. And we don't know for sure where Jesus is at this time during this text, but apparently he's a good distance away. Apparently it takes at least a day for this guy to find Jesus, even if he already knows where he is. So the guy sets off, he locates Jesus, and he delivers this, this urgent message. He whom you love is ill. And it's interesting to me that they don't tell Jesus what to do. They don't even make suggestions. They simply alert the Lord to the situation and trust that he's going to do what needs to be done. And again, I think that, that speaks to the depth of their relationship with Jesus. It speaks to their trust in him. So I don't know about you guys, but often when, when hard times come in my life and trials and tribulations, and we take it to the Lord, a lot of times it's, Lord, maybe we can try this. Lord, I think you should probably do this. Lord, maybe can we take this route? And we're trying to give the Lord guidance. But we don't see any of that here, do we? It's simply, Jesus, here's the situation. We're desperate, and we're laying this at your feet. Deal with it as you see fit. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 13, and I like how the New Living Translation renders this verse it says, Who is able to advise the Spirit of the Lord? Who knows enough to give him advice or teach him? Has the Lord ever needed anyone's advice? Does he need instruction about what is good? Did someone teach him what is right or show him the path of justice? What Isaiah is saying here is, look, the Lord doesn't need our advice. He doesn't need our wisdom. That might shock some of you guys. But he doesn't rely on us to tell him what to do. And I think this is such a great model here. When Mary, they just go and they speak to the Lord honestly. They lay out their issues before him and say, Lord, your will be done. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So Jesus, he gets this message, he gets in a chariot, and he races off to Bethany. No, it's not what he does at all, is it? He says, don't stress, guys. He says, this illness won't kill him. He's going to be just fine. And he says, in fact, this whole situation, it's happening for the glory of God. It's happening so people will look to me and see who I really am. And we look at this story, and it reminds me that God's timing here, God's timing always almost, is different than our sense of timing, isn't it? God typically doesn't work when and how we think he should. And it's interesting because we we know the whole story here, right? We know that Lazarus does indeed succumb to his illnesses, doesn't he? Jesus says, oh, don't worry about it. This isn't going to lead to death. But it does. He dies. But as we know, it isn't the end of the story, is it? Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill... He stayed two days longer in the place where he was. You read that, and again, it's like, what? Jesus loved this guy who was on the brink of death. And he loved his sister Mary and his sister Martha. So he hung out for two more days. There's not really, Jesus didn't feel that sense of urgency. It doesn't seem like, did he there? It doesn't seem like the logical action of a person who who loves you and is desperate to take care of you. My brother, whom we both love, is dying. Come quickly. Well, I love you so deeply that I'm going to hang out for two days and do nothing. And then I'm going to walk another day before I find you. But it's interesting to note at this point, if you kind of count backwards a little bit, though. At this point, Lazarus was already dead. By the time the messenger reached Jesus, Lazarus was already dead, and Jesus knew it. And he hangs out two more days. And next time when we're together, and we pick up the text, we're going to talk about why Jesus waited two additional days. And there was a very interesting and very specific reason why. And sort of a hint. Think of the princess bride. Remember when Wesley died? And they went, and um, and they're trying to bring him back to life. Remember, what did they say about Wesley? He's only mostly dead, (laughs) right? And so Jesus waits. That that was good. Most of you guys don't get my illustrations and references at all. So from here on out, it's only Princess Bride. (laughs) That's it. One day, um, this is not in my notes at all or anything, but I did a wedding for my best friend. And um, it was in Issaquah at Red Barn. And, um, and it was the first wedding that I'd ever done, actually. And so it was packed. It was a big wedding. And I got up there, and I just like, for, like 15 or 20 seconds, just silent. And everybody's like, what's wrong? And then I said, marriage. And uh, <laughs> it was pretty amazing. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> but so here... Jesus is playing off of some some Jewish superstitions that we'll look at next week. Sort of making sure that Lazarus isn't just mostly dead. Making sure that he's all the way dead. Waiting for the time frame. So we'll talk about that more next time. But here's the point. Look at what John tells us here. He loved these guys. So he waited two more days. And I don't want you to miss that first word there in verse 6. What's the first word? So. And that really changes the whole meaning, doesn't it? We we can infer and imply from that that it was because Jesus loved them that he waited two more days. This, This delay, it was based on his love and his care and his concern for them. It was his wanting to do something for them that he waited. And I don't want to belabor that point except to say for now that this delay was done out of the love for his friends. And we'll get to why more later. We'll see how that love manifests itself. But in verse seven, after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just... The Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you were going there again? So after the two days had passed, Jesus says, okay, it's time, guys, let's go. Let's let's pack up camp, and we're going to head back to Judea. And his disciples, his guys, they said, well, Jesus, did you forget what happened last weekend? Just now. They were they were wanting to pick up rocks and throw them at your head until you die. Or there's a little there's a little hostility towards you there. You really think this is the time to go back? You know and I don't know for sure, but I imagine that when the messenger had showed up two days later and Jesus delayed, I wonder if the disciples were thinking, all right, Jesus is waiting. Because he's concerned for his life, he's concerned for us. Now growing up, I had some kind of crazy friends. And we were always jumping off of bridges and jumping off of cliffs, snowboarding, doing stupid stuff in cars. I remember there was this um, ski area where I grew up called Snow Valley. And it was just acres and acres and acres of empty parking lot. And it would get this thick layer of ice. And I had this car at the time. Denise and I'm sure Jen, even probably from Bible college, remember this car. It was an 84 Firebird. Worst car you could imagine in the snow. And so we'd go up there and we'd get going like 30 or 40 and just slam on the brakes and crank the wheel and just see how many times we could whip it around. And, and I remember once, Denise and I, when we first got married, I was doing something foolish in a car and I was issued a citation for being a um, public nuisance. <laughs> and, um, and my wife loves to remind me of that. She Every time anything goes on, well, I'm not the one who is officially a public nuisance. <laughs> and so I think that in the disciples' mind, Jesus is sort of that guy a little bit. Jesus is the guy who's always engaging in risky behavior. Jesus is the guy who's always risking his life needlessly in their minds, I think. Jesus is the guy who's always taunting the religious authorities and then disappearing right before they can kill him, right? Here I am, and then whoop, he's gone. And so I think this is kind of how they're viewing Jesus a little bit. And they say, Jesus, are are you sure this is a good idea? Remember what happened last time we were there. And Jesus answers in verse 9. Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Just to clarify, I think Jesus knew that there were 24 hours in a day, right? Time was divided differently than how we divide it, right? There were 12 sections of day and 12 sections of night. And so that's what he's talking about. And he says, look, there's 12 hours of day. And if you go for a walk during the day, There's light out, and you can see where you're going. You can avoid the obstacles. There's potholes, and there's perils, and there's pitfalls, but you can see them. And you just walk around them. But if you take that same walk at nighttime, you're going to fall down. You're going to get bumped and bruised and scraped because you can't see. And Jesus is, is making this analogy here, this comparison spiritually. And he says, you have the the light of the world inside of you, so you can avoid spiritual pitfalls and traps. But if you don't have that light, if you're not filled with the Spirit, you're going to stumble and fall. And I think he's making a reference here to the disciples' lack of faith. He says, you guys are making these mistakes, and you're missing what the Lord's really wanting to do here because you're not trusting, and you're walking in darkness. After saying these things, verse 11, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I must go to awaken him. He says, Lazarus is asleep. He's taking a little nap. I'm just going to go wake him up. And the disciples say to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking a rest and sleep. So the disciples say, look, Lazarus is sleeping. Let the man just get his rest and he'll get better. Jesus, why do you want to go all the way to Bethany to risk your life and ours? He's already on the road to recovery, they say. Let him rest. We'll send him a card. We'll send him a bouquet, and everything's going to be fine. But verse 13, John says that Jesus was referring to Lazarus' death. But the disciples... We're thinking of slumber. And those days, sleeping, it could mean sleeping, right? Or it could also be a euphemism for death. And we see very clearly here and in a few other places in Scripture that, that that it is used to mean death. And so it sort of depends on the context, right? For example, in our day, if somebody says he is no longer with us, it could mean that that person is what? Dead? Or it could mean that they're no longer employed at that location. Or it could mean that, well, he was here three minutes ago and he walked to the store. Right? It can mean a few different things. And we sort of have to listen to the context of the conversation to give us clues on on what is meant there. Right? If if, if if you say to somebody, how is your grandpa? I know that he was in poor health and he's 109. And if that person says, well, he's no longer with us, we take that to mean that he passed away. Whereas if you go to a business and ask to see a salesman who you worked with last year, and they say, no, he's not with us anymore, you usually don't think that it's because he's dead, right? You think, well, it's because he moved on to another job. And that's what's going on here. Jesus says it in this way, he's asleep, but I'm going to go wake him up. And the way Jesus says it, he makes the guys think that he's talking about literal sleep. With the cultural cues and the context, the guys assume that Jesus is talking about literal sleep here. Because typically, if you're referring to death, you're not gonna go wake them up like they're in a nap, right? It just didn't make sense to them. And so the guys are understandably confused here. They didn't get it. Then Jesus told them plainly, verse 14. I like it when he does that, don't you? When he just tells us plainly. (laughs) He told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Jesus says, listen, guys, let me me bring clarity to the situation here. In case you miss what I'm saying, Lazarus is dead. He's not taking a cat nap. He's not sleeping. He's dead. And I'm going to bring him back to life. And he says, listen, for your sake, I'm glad that I wasn't there to heal him. Now think about what Jesus is saying there. For your sake, I'm glad that he died, Jesus says. He says, in this situation, that's better because it's going to help you to believe in me. This is an interesting line of thought for us here. Sometimes, The Lord allows us to go through some hard stuff. Sometimes he allows us to go through some hard times to increase our faith, to make us stronger in him. And I've talked about this before a little bit. But when we were in Belize, for the first few years especially, as we'd kind of gone out on missionary support, you know, our, our first few years were crazy tight financially. And there were so many times that we were looking under the cushions for change to buy ramen for that night. There were so many times when we literally didn't know where our next meal was coming from there on the mission field. And at the time, we think, well, why, Lord? Well, I don't understand. You know, you called us down here. We're, we're being obedient to you. Why are we going through such hard times? But every time we got down to nothing and didn't know where our next meal was coming from, he would provide in crazy, amazing ways sometimes. And as we kept seeing that over and over again, he kept building our faith up stronger and stronger. And that process of strengthening our faith, it took effort, it took pain, it took difficulties. But in the end, that faith that he built up in us got us through some really difficult times. Later on down the road and it kind of seems like that a lot of times whatever you're going through now is sort of preparation for the next thing right and then whatever you're going through next time is preparation for the next thing and we kind of see that going on here a little bit but through all the difficulties that we went through we we grew to understand that we could count on the lord We knew from experience, not just from hearing other people, but from our personal experience that the Lord would always be faithful to us. And so Jesus says, he says, this thing here, this this Lazarus dying, he says, I let him die out of love for his sisters and for your good. It's for your best interest. And then he says, all right, so let's go, guys. So verse 16, Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us go also, that we may die with him. Sounds like a real fun guy, doesn't he? Thomas here. And what do we, how, do we, how do we usually refer to him? Doubting Thomas. And sort of a side note, poor Thomas. He's always remembered for all eternity for his worst day, isn't he? He's remembered for not believing that Jesus had rose from the dead until he saw it personally. And the truth is, the only reason the other disciples weren't in the exact same shoes as him is because they saw it, right? Everybody else would have been the same. They were, none of them were very solid guys at that point. But I like this picture here. And something interesting, by the way, that I recently learned. That nickname, the twin, it says Th- Thomas the twin. Church tradition tells us that it probably wasn't because he had a twin, right? That, that's not why they call him the twin. Church tradition says they call him the twin because he looked like Jesus. And people say, oh, wow, you guys could be brothers. You guys could be twins. So that, that's kind of interesting on its own, but think about this. If they went up to Judea Where Jesus was a wanted man, if they went to Judea where they wanted to kill Jesus, right? And the wanted posters in the post office, right? They didn't have a photo on them, right? They were all hand drawn with, you know, I don't know how they did it. But if you went up to Judea with the disciples looking just like Jesus, you're the first one that's going to get nabbed, right? It would have been easy to, to, a little mistaken identity there. Thomas had more to lose than anybody else did. And he says, all right, you're going up, Jesus, let's go. Let's roll. We're all going to die together. And, you know, and I think it was easy to kind of look at it as kind of a downer here, but that's the guy who I want by my side, isn't it? If you're in ministry, if you're going into the trenches, you want somebody who's going to say, you're going into a rough spot, let's all go. We'll all die together. You don't want the guy who's always doubting. You don't want the guy who's afraid to take risks. You don't want the guy who always sees the cup as half empty, who's always negative. Thomas says, okay, let's do this. If we die, at least we die together. At least we all go down fighting. Remember, um, remember King Artaxerxes when he was attacking the Greeks and he sends a message to uh, King Leonidas. And he says, listen, you need to surrender. You need to lay down your arms. And you guys probably know the famous reply that King Leonidas made. He said, Molan labe." when he told him to lay down your arms, he said, come and take him. You want my sword? Come and get it. And that's kind of the, kind of the type of guy I picture Thomas to be here. Right? He gets a bad rap a little bit. But, but church history gives us a different picture of Thomas. Thomas, who's a pioneering missionary. Thomas, who goes over to the subcontinent of India and evangelizes it and, and plants churches there. Thomas, who boldly lays down his life for his faith. We always remember poor Thomas on his worst day. How many of you guys would want to be remembered throughout all of history for your worst day? I, for one, would rather not. Now, when Jesus came... He found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So they get to Bethany and find that Lazarus is indeed dead already, just like Jesus had said. And they find many of the Jews, many of the Jewish leaders there, are consoling Mary and Martha. Again, pointing to the fact that this was a family with some position and influence in society. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. This is interesting to me here. Because we all know the story of Mary and Martha, right, in Luke chapter 10. Remember Jesus is having a, a, a dinner party at their house at another point in time. Martha's there and she's running around making sure that everything's going well she's, she's busy doing all the things that need to get done and then she looks over and sees her sister Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus worshiping. I remember she comes to Jesus and she's complaining Jesus tell her to get off her rear tell her to help me have her give me a hand don't you care Jesus remember in verse 41 The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. It's interesting here, isn't it, that we see that that wasn't an isolated thing. We see this is sort of a personality trait for both of them, huh? Lazarus had just died. And one of the sisters, Mary, just sat there. She remains seated, sort of in the moment, reflecting on what had happened. And Martha, she hears that Jesus is coming, and what does she do? She runs off to meet him. She runs out to meet Jesus. And as I was thinking about this, it seems like maybe in this circumstance, maybe Martha chose the better thing. Mary is mourning, and Martha is seeking the Lord. Here's what I think. I think there are times in our ministry, in our lives, when we need to be busy, when we need to be serving and doing and being active. And there are times in ministry and in life when we just need to stop and sit at the feet of Jesus and worship. Here's the trick. Knowing when to do when, right? Right? When should we be doing? When should we be sitting and worshiping? Because I don't want to be busy doing when I should be worshiping. And I don't want to be found sitting around when I should be serving. I don't think there's an easy answer. I don't think there's a, a metric or formula that we can apply here. Except to seek the Lord and ask Him for wisdom. I didn't know ourselves, right? If your tendency is to do and do and do and do, you need to understand that about yourself and make sure that you're taking time to sit at the feet of the Lord and worship. And if your tendency is just to sit, sometimes you have to be proactive and plan to do something. We see here Martha in her time of need She runs to the Lord. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. This is a hard verse. Not intellectually hard, but emotionally hard. Any of you guys who ever watch combat sports, you watch... UFC or ONE FC or whatever or boxing, you hear this term come up sometimes. They talk about the fighters' fight IQ. Anybody ever heard that term? Their fight IQ. All right, I should have stuck with Princess Bride. I should have made an illustration of Wesley and Fezzik fighting. I guess. Right, but when when people talk about the fighter fight IQ, it talks about a, f- a fighter's sort of his innate ability to understand what's going on in the fight. To make sure he's in the right spot and the right time to capitalize on what's going on. And, and I, I think that the same thing can be said spiritually. I think there's sort of a, a spiritual I.Q. that some people have, this ability to sort of innately understand what's going on in a situation. And I think Martha here, she shows a lot of, of spiritual I.Q. Initially, she simply just sends word to Jesus. Here's the situation, Lord. Do your will. Here she goes to Jesus and said, Lord, if you would have been here, Lazarus would still be alive. And that's absolutely true, right? But I don't think, and when we read it in English, it kind of sounds like an accusation, doesn't it? Lord, if you would have just come, he'd be alive. Why didn't you come? But I don't think that that's the sense or the heart of what she's saying. I think it's more of a statement. Lord, I know that you could have handled this. But even now, she says, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Now, we understanding the whole story and know what happens in the end, It's easy for us to look at this and just assume that she was talking about Lazarus rising from the dead, right? But I don't think that Jesus bringing Lazarus back to life was was even on her radar at that point. I think she's more saying, Lord, I don't understand this. I don't get why you let Lazarus die. Nevertheless, your will be done. Like Job said, The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And I think she's saying, look, Jesus, I'm I'm disappointed. Jesus, I I don't understand why, why you let this happen. I don't understand why you let my brother die. But I still trust you. And again, it reminds me of Job. Job chapter 13, remember he says, even though he slays me, yet I will trust him. And I think that's her heart here. Lord, I don't understand why you're allowing these things to happen. I don't understand why we're going through this. Yet, I choose to trust you, Jesus. And in verse 23, Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. I I love the interaction here. Jesus says, look, Mary, don't stress. Your brother's going to rise again. She says, I know, Lord. I know that I'm going to see him in eternity. I know that we're going to be reunited again in heaven. But you see what's going on here. Jesus says, look, your brother's going to rise from the dead. She says, I know. He's in a better place. I'll see him someday. And Jesus says, yeah, someday like in five minutes. We're talking about different things here. And sometimes I think we're like that. I think a lot of times the Lord says something and we miss what he's really saying to us. I think a lot of times we get so caught up in our heads and in our minds and the way that we perceive things that we miss what the Lord really wants to do in our lives. We miss the way that he really wants to bless us. Jesus said to her, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So Jesus says, your brother is going to rise again. Or she says, I know on the last day I'll see him again. And then Jesus here, he makes one of the most profound statements, I think in all of scripture. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus says, you're talking about resurrection. You're talking about him coming back to life. He says, you know what? That's me. He says, I'm the one. He says, believe in me. And even though you die, you will live. He says, believe in me. You'll never die. And and physically, of course, we know that we'll die. But he says, spiritually, you'll never die. You'll live forever. You'll, you'll live into eternity. He says, look, in me is eternal life. In me, and only through me, will you find life after death. Anyone who believes in me will live. And then he says this. Do you believe this, Martha? He lays it out there for her. explains who he is. And then he says, do you believe? Do you believe? And she says to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. I'll comment a little bit more on this verse in a minute as we close. But I want to kind of circle back for a second. We talked about that quote in the beginning. C.S. Lewis said that pain is God's megaphone. To rouse a deaf world. I want to make a couple points. First, God didn't create pain and suffering in this world. We did. And we continue to through our own decisions. And I don't mean you and I individually, but I mean us collectively as humanity. We've we've created this messed up culture and society that we live in. Remember, God, he created perfection there in Eden. He created paradise for his children. And we screwed it up. And you know what? If Adam hadn't done it, you would have. I would have. One of us would have. And all that sin, all that suffering, all the pain and loss, death and disease, it's a direct result of our sin. And again, maybe not your sin personally or my sin personally, although sometimes it is. But whether it's a result of man's sin collectively or your individual sin, oftentimes God uses that pain to get our attention. Right? When you touch a hot pan, what do you do? You pull back your hand. That pain It alerts you of danger, doesn't it? Sometimes God allows pain and suffering into our lives to help us, to alert us of the danger of eternity without Him. He uses pain and suffering to draw our eyes to Him, to remind us of the reality of the dangers of hell. Sometimes suffering happens because we live in a broken, sinful world that we created for ourselves. But sometimes suffering is God's way of getting our attention. You say, wow, that doesn't doesn't seem very nice. Well, here's the thing. And I don't know about you guys, but myself. I have a tendency that when life is going good, I'm a lot less likely to desperately seek the face of God. When I'm content and happy and my wife likes me and I've got money to pay my bills and nobody's sick, I don't always realize that desperation. It doesn't change. I just lose sight of it. But the Lord allows in a little suffering. All of a sudden, I'm curled up in the fetal position, right? calling on the name of the Lord. And how many of us first came to Christ through some personal tragedy or difficulty that we went through? And in that sense, it's God's mercy and love that causes him to allow suffering into our lives, to redirect us back to him. And and we need to remember that God, and I don't mean to say that God doesn't care about your personal comfort, but he's far more concerned with your eternal destination than he is with your personal comfort. And if he has to cause you a little discomfort right now, to save you from hell, he will gladly do that. He'll gladly allow a little suffering or discomfort if it's gonna save you from an eternity of separation from him. The second thing I wanna notice, between the day that Lazarus died and Jesus showed up and resurrected him, right? There's a four-day period there. And I imagine that during that four-day period, his family could not see how God was going to be glorified. They didn't understand what was going on. And I think that a lot of us, are maybe at that point today, we're stuck in those four days But we're in the midst of suffering and we're not understanding what's going on. We don't understand how the things that we're going through now are going to be used for God's glory in our lives. And I want to encourage you, don't give up. Don't lose hope. Because resurrection will bring it all to light. I want to encourage you to wait on the Lord and in time, He will reveal Himself and his wisdom, and his plan. And sometimes that happens in this side of eternity. Sometimes we might have to wait to the other side of eternity to understand what's going on. But because of past experience, we can trust the Lord and trust that he is in control and that he is indeed working all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. And here's the thing, I heard this somewhere and I don't remember where, and I'm probably not even quoting it exactly right, but it says that omnipotence and omniscience can afford to wait. And I like that thought. If you're all powerful and all knowing, if you have, if you know the outcome and have the power to change it, there's no rush, is there? You can take all the time you need, right? Jesus appeared to be four days late, didn't he? But in the spiritual world, he was right on time. He was right when and where he was supposed to be. Is there suffering going on in your life right now? Are you really going through it right now? Let me ask you this. What do you think the Lord might be wanting to teach you through it? What do you think the Lord is trying to show you in the midst of that suffering? And maybe you don't know the Lord this morning. Maybe you find yourself here this morning and you're hurting and you're suffering. And that might be exactly why you're here it may well be that the Lord is using that to get your attention because he wants to save you, because he wants to show you his his lavish grace and mercy and love. And sometimes the Lord has to take us to the point where we can't do anything else on our own so that we'll turn to him, so that we'll realize our need and our desperation for him. Remember in verse 25, Jesus says to Martha, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And Jesus is asking some of us the same thing this morning, the same question. Joel, do you believe this? Each one of us, do you believe this? Do you believe Only through Jesus Christ can we find real life, eternal life. Do you believe that? Hopefully, like Martha, you can say, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ. You are the resurrection and the life. But if you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ, hopefully you'll do so today. We're going to come to the Lord's table in a minute. We're going to share in communion. And as I said before, communion is for believers. It's for all those who have been born again. It's for those it's for the body of Christ, those who have who've have repented of their sins and asked the Lord to forgive them and to save them. And if you've not given your life to Jesus, there's two options concerning communion. A Simply let the plate pass you by. Option B, give your life to Jesus this morning. And by the way, if you have to pick, I encourage B, much better option. Call in the name of the Lord and be saved. And it's a simple thing. Just Simply pray, Lord Jesus, I can't do this on my own. I've failed too many times. I'm a sinner who needs to be saved. Lord, forgive me, save me. And that's not the exact verbatim, right? But just call out to the name of the Lord. Put your faith and hope in him. And you know what? It really is that simple. And after you do that, as we pass around the communion plate, partake with us. After communion, come up and pray with us. But give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Get on the right track. Heavenly Father, we love you, Lord. We're so grateful for who you are. We're so grateful for just how, how deep your word is. and How we can read it so many times and always just continue to get fed and learn something new, Lord. And more than all those things, we're so deeply grateful that that you love us and that you always have our best interests at heart, Lord. And you always do things to, to further who we are in you. And I just pray for anyone here who doesn't know you this morning, Lord, that you would just break their hearts. That you would draw them unto yourself. We pray that in your name, Jesus.